Hi, I'm Tony Rivera. I serve as the Director of Educational Assessment at Marion University, and welcome to this episode of Data Talk. Whether you are staff, faculty, or a student, you know that there can be so much fatigue when it comes to things like surveys and evaluations. You are asked to complete so many things, but often never hear back about the findings and how findings are used on campus. Data Talk seeks to highlight the people on campus involved in assessment, the people who read your responses to various assessments and use the data to inform curricular and co-curricular improvements at Marion. Our guest today is Karen Candlish. Karen is the Dean of Students and Title IX Coordinator at Marion. Karen earned her bachelor's in English from Marion University. She earned her master's in higher education student affairs and a law degree both from Indiana University. Karen Candlish, welcome to Data Talk. Thanks, Tony. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. So, Karen, before we we get into the data, you know, I just have a couple of, of questions to help me and the listener learn more about you. So, first and foremost, I have to start with your with your undergrad experience and and your major. So, I was an English major, and um, I'm I'm just I'm really curious about your experience as an English major. So was this more writing? Was this more literature? Mm, Good question. So I think the reason that I chose English as a major in undergrad was it was something that I loved. You know, I um, really took to my English classes in high school. I very vividly remember all of my experiences with my English teachers and how I really appreciated their teaching style and just being able to read and write and kind of talk more about what's happening in literature and just I don't know. Stories are amazing and a great way to learn. And so I wanted to study that more. And so I decided to major in English just because it was something that I enjoyed doing. I loved reading. I loved writing. I don't know that there was a focus on literature or writing for me. I think it was kind of all of the things. I did some creative writing. I I loved writing papers and the opportunity to do that instead of taking tests was so interesting to me. I think my last two two years probably of undergrad, I don't think I took a single exam. I think I was just writing paper after paper. I was like, give me more of this, which is why my dad thought I should go straight to law school. And I told him I was going to go do this higher ed thing. He was like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. what, what, what job does that mean you're going to have? And then when I was in grad school and I decided I, I wanted to go to law school eventually, my dad was like, seriously, seriously, of all the things. So yeah, then I went and got a law degree and did more reading and writing just of a different a different style. So, I mean, just kind of thinking about your your current work, what did you gain from that experience at, at Marion as, a, as an English major, and, and how are you able to apply that in your current role? I mean, just the ability to communicate effectively. So much of what I do on a day-to-day basis is talk and write, you know, email even, between students and faculty and staff and families who have questions. So being able to communicate effectively and transparently and try to help people get where they need to go. I mean, so much of that is communication and how to do that well. Um, And I learned a lot of that at Marion. And then outside of my academic program, just the Franciscan values and the Catholic and Franciscan intellectual tradition that, you know, kind of made me who I am really impacts my ability to be an effective student affairs professional in helping students be successful and managing and helping through student crises and all of that. I mean, 
dignity of the individual, reconciliation when it comes to student conduct. I mean, so much of the Franciscan values are ingrained in who I am as a person and as a leader. And that really makes me, I think, a better professional in higher education. Moving into to your master's program, you wrote an article about student perceptions of Twitter and institutional tweets back in 2014. In this article, you write, higher education professionals must understand how to capitalize on the presence of social media in order to provide students with meaningful engagement opportunities during their college experiences. I'm just curious, it's been almost 10 years mm-hmm. uh, since this, this uh, article was written. Obviously, technology as well as higher education have changed dramatically in, in that time. But how do you currently leverage social media in your role as, as dean and Title IX coordinator? I think it's funny hearing that quote from 2014, and you said everything has changed so drastically. I feel like the importance of leveraging social media in the student experience has just heightened. It has certainly not gone away. We might not be talking about Twitter as much as we're talking about maybe Instagram, or we're not leveraging Snapchat, but it is a part of our students' experience, and so how do we make sure that we are aware of that and how that is uh, shaping them and their their experiences at Marion? But I think that in my role as a dean of students, I want to make sure that our I don't have my own institutional social media account, but we have people who do, right? We have a Marion University Instagram and social media accounts. Our student activities office has one, campus activities board, student government association. So we want to make sure that they're utilizing that to share information and put stuff out there. I think that in Title IX, we could do a better job, and this, is, this speaks to the data we're going to talk about today, we could do a better job of leveraging social media to share important information about how to report harassment or discrimination and put that on our social media channels. I think that's something we're going to try and do more of. So after earning your master's degree, you come back to Mary, and, and I mean, just looking at it, I would really argue it's really been a meteoric rise since mm-hmm. you, since you came back, mm-hmm. you know, in all seriousness. I mean, you spend a year in alumni relations, then you're assistant director of housing and residence life for two years, assistant dean and director of housing and residence life for almost two years, and then you become the dean of students about five years after earning your your master's mm-hmm. degree. And for those for those listeners, I got my master's degree in 2006, <laughs> and uh, it's 2023. I'm the director of assessment. But anyway, but <laughs> but I mean, five years after your master's, you're you're dean of students, and you know, I think it's easy to uh, for people to you know maybe dismiss it and say things like, "Right place, right time." Mm-hmm. I was I was lucky, but I mean, you, you have to be special in order to to do something like that, and. And, I mean, as a colleague, just being in meetings with you and observing you, to have the respect of, of faculty and staff, you know, nobody really seems to ever challenge, like, mm-hmm. your legitimacy, your seat at the table. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm just curious, like, how do you do that? How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that something that I say a lot is, like, right place, right time, but also right attitude, right work ethic, right you know, perspective, or I I also think it's about taking advantage of opportunities when they present themselves. So one example that I can think of is I came back in 2014 as the assistant director of alumni relations, but I knew that I probably wanted to go to law school. And well, not that I probably did, that I did. I did want to go to law school and I wanted to become a dean of students. So those are things that I had my 
I had my sights set on. And because of that, and I also had a mentor in Ruth Rogers, who has known me since I was a student at Marion um, and a student leader in various roles, she was starting to recruit Title IX investigators and note takers, people to help do the Title IX work. And that's not something we had done at Marion before. We had a Title IX coordinator and a deputy coordinator, but they were doing the bulk of the work. They were doing the investigations. They were doing the hearings if we needed to do hearings. And so they had started to expand. And and because Ruth knew that I wanted to go to law school, she said, you should be involved in this. This is, this is an opportunity. So I had a supportive supervisor in alumni relations, and she said, you know, yeah, if you want to be trained to be a Title IX investigator, you should go do that. And so I did, and that certainly helped me professionally, right, develop to be a, I learned more about student conduct, and I learned more about how to be in a room when students have experienced really, really hard things, and they're talking about it, right, harassment, discrimination, in some cases, assault. And I learned how to walk with students through that experience, right, that investigation or that hearing experience. And I got a lot of professional development in that area. And then I also had a mentor who knew kind of where I wanted to go and was helping me and guiding me in getting experiences that would maybe get me there. I did not at all foresee being a dean of students five years after I graduated from my master's program. It's as shocking to me as it is to you, it sounds like. <laughs> and then I decided to go to law school, and I also got into housing, right? I, that, I didn't have housing experience, real housing experience, before I was the assistant director of the housing office. And I was interested in that role and ended up applying for that role because Ruth, my mentor, had said, you know, I, I probably wouldn't hire a dean of students if they didn't have housing experience because that's so much of the bulk of what a dean of students typically does. And so I sought that out because I had a mentor who was telling me that this is something you might want to look at. She wasn't saying at Marion. She wasn't trying to steal me from the alumni relations office. I should say that so that she so that my former supervisor who doesn't work here anymore uh, knows that, you know, she didn't she didn't try to steal me. But she she was always encouraging me to get that experience. And so I think it's a number of things. I mean, right time and right place certainly play a factor, but also taking advantage of opportunities that were presented to me, kind of broadening my scope and developing as a professional in a broader way, and then recognizing what it takes to get there and trying to finagle a route. I remember once before I was the Dean of Students, but kind of this trajectory was, trajectory was happening. I was you know, moving positions. And I was talking to another colleague who no longer works here. And I said, this was never my plan. It wasn't ever my plan to come back to Marion 18 months after I graduated from Marion. It wasn't my plan to work in housing at Marion. I mean, none of this was like what I thought would be happening. And he said to me, you know, well, it's not, it's not your plan. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think there's part of that too. Like I, I thought that things were going to go a certain way and then it didn't at all. And here we are now. And I do think I've worked really hard at trying to build relationships with faculty and staff and make sure that they know that they can count on me and I can help them. I'm just kind of curious, like going back to your journey, because for those listening, you know, they may not be familiar with kind of the the landscape of student affairs administration and in higher education, but it's, it's becoming more common to see people with JDs in, in leadership roles, but you know, for the, for the most part, you know, everybody has a, a master's, you know, a, a lot will have an EDD or, or PhD. So I'm just kind of 
curious, like when you were talking about this and, and pursuing it, I mean, there wasn't really this like, you know, I mean, I had people who had PhDs that were like, hey, let me let me show you the ropes and, and help you out and talk you through it. But it's like there wasn't, I mean, in 2014, you know, I mean, there's not like a ton of JDs floating around. So like, how did you know that, hey, this, you know, like how mm-hmm. did, yeah. I actually wrote about this in my interest statement or my uh, personal statement to go to law school. So I very vividly remember a conversation that Ruth and I have that she has no memory of, but I very vividly remember this which means that it was formative for me when we were talking and she said, you know, student affairs developmental, we're thinking about the development of our students and how we can help them be successful and where they are in their identity development and what's impacting them and their ability to be successful and how can we get them to graduation and job, and all the things, you know, that's, that's our scope. That's what we're trying to do in a lot of different ways. And general counsel's over here trying to make sure that we manage our risk and we enter into good contracts and we do all of these things and very legal and they speak a different language. Like we speak different languages and it's actually very true that the legal system is a whole, I mean, if, if anyone listening has ever read a contract that was written by lawyers or had to go to small claims or anything, it's a very, you know, intimidating and challenging process and it really does speak a different language. This is a conversation for another time, but I think it does that intentionally. Job security for lawyers and many, many other things. But so there was a communication barrier between the two areas. And and so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I think we had that conversation. I don't know when we had that conversation, but I remember it very vividly. And then I also remember an experience of being in graduate school in my master's program I took a class where we had a guest speaker come in, and it was the chief of staff for the chancellor at IUPUI. And at the time, the chief of staff was Andy Klein, and Andy Klein is a lawyer, and he actually was leaving that job to become the dean of the um, McKinney School of Law at IU. And he was talking about his role and how it kind of bridges the gap between higher ed administration and the law and how there's a lot of overlap between law and higher ed and that there's, you know, there's a lot there. And so I think the combination of those two experiences, having my mentor tell me that there might be this benefit to having, to being educated in both languages, and then having a professional in higher ed administration talk about the connection between law and higher ed, I think it was a real light bulb moment for me when I was in my, that would have been my second semester of graduate school, to decide, because I think I decided then that I wanted to go to law school eventually. There are some people who decide to go to law school right after they get their master's because maybe they want to be general counsel and they don't really, they don't really need professional experience. But that wasn't ever my goal. I didn't want to be general counsel for a university. I wanted to be a dean of students. And so I wanted practical professional experience in higher education before I went back to law school. So I decided to apply for jobs in higher ed instead of going straight to law school, and then worked from, you know, 2014 to 2017. In 2017, I started law school part-time, which was an experience in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. It was good, though. I loved it. I loved law school. I really took to it, which kind of frustrated me because it meant that my dad was right all those years ago when he said that I should go to law school. And I was like, dang it. (laughs) My dad was right all along that I would like law school and I would be good at it. 
And I I really appreciated going part-time because it meant that we had subject matter experts who had worked full-time in other areas. You know, a lot of people, this is a second career. And so they have full careers of experience in business or education or science and technology or, you know, various other areas. And so we could have really awesome conversations about the law we were discussing and how they had real world experience in their own lives. And so I really did love law school. If anyone wants to go to law school out there, just let me know. Um, I I will actively recruit you for the profession. Well, I mean, it's such a, such an interesting journey to, Mm -hmm. to learn about and to, I mean, just, just listening to you talk about, you know, how you got here and then, and also, you know, just working with you now, because I think it's, it's not uncommon for faculty staff, you know, anybody to just kind of stay in their wheelhouse. I mean, it seems like with you, it's, it's like, you're just, you're constantly like evolving and building mm-hmm. that. I mean, you're, you, you have this law background and, you, you know, one might think like, okay, she's going to be very much like, about compliance and in interacting with you, I mean, you're so like student centered, Mm -hmm. learning centered, and then working with you on assessment stuff. I mean, you're so data driven and to, to kind of have all of those things and to excel in them is really like a rare thing. Certainly something like I haven't seen in, in a lot of people that I've worked with. So it's really, it's really cool to just learn more about, about your journey. Thanks. Now we can, transition into into the data. So for this episode, we will be discussing findings from the sexual assault campus climate surveys administered by the Higher Education Data Sharing Consortium. These surveys were administered to undergraduate students, graduate students, faculty, and staff at Marion during the fall 2022 semester. And we have not received comparison reports, so we're, we are just looking at an internal Uh, analysis of our raw quantitative data. So there's a lot more to come with this data set. Karen, just to to start off, I mean, I'm curious, I know, I know, you know, you spent a lot of time looking at this and we spent time talking about, you know, these findings and going to have a lot more discussions. Um, I'm just curious, you know, what stood out to you when you were looking at the, the findings from these surveys? I think one of the things that stood out when I was looking at the findings was, and this wasn't shocking to me. You know, when we look at our Cleary data, which is our annual security report that we're required by law to put out every year, which talks about the number of crimes that happen on our campus, our numbers, which if you want to look at our report, it's on the Marion University Police Department's website, Campus Safety. Our numbers are really low, which is good. You know, it's good to have low numbers of crimes that are happening on your campus. But when you compare that to our survey data, our campus climate survey data, it seems that we have, and this is also, uh, this is a trend nationally, we have an underreporting. We have an issue with underreporting. So it's not, our Cleary numbers aren't low necessarily because there's a low number of incidents. They're probably low because we have incidents that aren't being reported. And so when, and then when you look at the data too, it seems like we could be doing a better job of informing students, faculty, and staff about not only how to report, but also what happens when you report. And I think that that would help people, one, understand how to report, and two, 
to be able to anticipate what happens next so that they're not blindsided by the, the process. So I think that those things really stood out to me. You know, we're going to work to try and educate our community differently so that they know how to do those things. Specifically, looks like around 75% of faculty and staff indicated they received information or education about what sexual assault is and how to recognize it. But less than half of undergraduate and graduate students said the same. So, I mean, you, you touched on it a little bit. What do you think are opportunities to educate our students, engage other people in the campus community about these discussions? One of the things that I'm really excited about is about a year ago now, we received a grant from the Department of Justice Office of Violence Against Women, um, and it's a grant to help us educate. It's really about prevent- preventative education on dating violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking. And so Kara Kubanzik is our program coordinator for that grant program, and it's really about educating the whole community, students, faculty, and staff, on what those things are, right? What is dating violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking, and also how to report, how to know what happens after you report, what are resources that are available to all of our students, what are programs that we're doing, um, what is the training that we're offering. And so some things that we have started doing in our health and well-being class, which is a required class for all of our first-year students that take, they take it in their second semester, we just completed bystander intervention training for all of those students. And so that was a very exciting thing that happened because of the grant that we got. And then we are also integrating more general training, so not bystander intervention training, but kind of what are those crimes and how to report them and uh, what support can you get or have access to on our campus and around our campus. We're doing that and in, we're integrating that into first year seminar. So again, a required class for first year students taking in their first semester. So we're going to do that in the fall. And so it, I think that those are exciting things that we are implementing. And the grant is really helping us think about the whole campus experience related to those crimes and, and those policy violations or incidents uh, that happen on our campus related to discrimination and harassment and how do we make sure that our community is safe and that students know what resources are available and what their reporting options are. It seems like you you kind of addressed it in your response to that last question, but the other question I have was that stood out to me in terms of the findings that stood out to me. 58% of undergraduate students either agreed or strongly agreed with the statement campus officials would take action against the offender. So again, you know, you've provided some some strategies that I think are, are really going to help prove that that number and students have some confidence that actions will be will be taken. But are there other ways, other efforts going on that that might help to engage the campus community and increase student confidence in the the institution when it comes to responding to sexual assault? That's a good question. I think that, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about is what are the physical representations of safety and and that if something happens, we will take it seriously? What on our campus helps students feel safe and secure and that we'll, we will respond? And I actually think that as I'm thinking about it, we have some things that are kind of very obvious 
I think that our like blue lights that we have on campus now are it, that's like a, a physical representation of safety, right? Like there's there's opportunity to call someone and for them to be there quickly, MEPD, for example. Another one is we had a, a flyer we created about Title IX and, and discrimination and harassment and how to report. I think that flyer, I haven't done an updated one. I haven't created an updated one recently. And also it's very wordy and it, you know, you have to like read the whole thing to get all the information. But could we have some more visual representations of we want you to be safe and we want to take care of you and we care about you. And because we care about you, we want you to report instances of discrimination and harassment. And if you do, this is what will happen but in a way that is very readable and easy to take in and you know exactly what you need to do, you know, or there's a QR code and you can go read more if you want to. But so I think that we could do a better job of, as we're thinking about it, like what are the physical, how does a student know that we, we care about them? How does a student know that they're safe here? How does a student know that if something happens, we'll take it seriously? And I think a lot of times students for those well, you said 58% agree with the statement. For the 42% that don't agree, I think that they're probably getting their information from their friends, right? Like, I said something, nothing happened. And so how do we work with that, too, right? How do we make sure that, again, our students know what the process is? Because, so for Title IX, for example, if a student reports something, and they, but let's say they tell a faculty member, they tell a faculty member that something happened to them. Maybe somebody just said something that makes them feel uncomfortable. And that faculty member reports it to the Title IX office, to, reports it to me typically, and I meet with that student. Sometimes that student will say, I don't want to do anything about this. And because discrimination and harassment is so much about taking power away from people, I want to be able to give as much power back to that person as possible. And so if I am able, meaning if there isn't a larger risk to our campus community, and that's typically about physical safety, if I am able, if a student doesn't want to do anything about something, I can do that. I can honor their wishes, and I cannot do something about it. We could also not do anything formal, but do something more informal, right? Like scheduling a mediation or scheduling a meeting with, you know, I could just meet with the person who took inappropriate action or acted inappropriately and so on the outside if you don't know kind of what the student asked for it may look to someone who doesn't have that information like the university didn't do anything how do we make sure that students understand that that's our process so that they're aware that hey I might not have students faculty and staff right I may not have all the information but I reported this and the title IX coordinator told me that she was going to follow up on it and and is going to do that so I think that's part of it too so how do we make sure that the information is out there and that our students feel safe secure and that something will happen if they if they report something and then how do we make sure that they know what the whole process is because they might not have all the information and just kind of going back to what you were talking about you're talking about decisions that that you can make as the title IX coordinator but when it comes to faculty and staff at Marion I mean, I know there's there's some, you know, maybe like the, the counseling center, the uh, I, I believe some clergy, mm-hmm. but but we're we're all mandated reporters when it comes to sexual assault, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. 
all employees of Marion University are expected to report instances of harassment or discrimination, including assault. And that's not only based on sex, which is Title IX, but also based on any identity a student may hold. So we want our campus to be safe. We want it to be inclusive and welcoming. And so if students report to a faculty or staff member that they've experienced discrimination or harassment, which includes assault, they're expected to share that with um, the dean of students or Title IX coordinator, who in this case is the same person. But as you said, there are people on our campus who are not mandatory reporters, and those people are our counselors in the Counseling Consultation Services Office, as well as our health services staff in the Student Health Center and the clergy, and and that's when they're acting in those capacities. So if you have, for example, a priest as a faculty member in your class, so, you know, he's a priest, but he's also your faculty member, then when you're in class, that person is a mandatory reporter, right? But if you go and see him for confession, that's a situation where he wouldn't be required to report. The other question I had, so we, we recently held our annual data use roundtable. So for those, those listening, I'm sure you you're, may not be familiar with this. So this is something that we've done the last two years where several faculty and staff review all of our assessment findings and, and discuss action plans. So this year, we looked at the sexual assault campus climate surveys as well as the satisfaction survey from the Higher Education Data Sharing Consortium. But Karen, you've, you've been involved in this the last two years, and you've been such a huge contributor to the discussion and to the crafting of, of action plans. I don't know, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on the data use roundtable and, and just kind of what were your discussions like and what action plans emerged. This is such a very well-crafted question because because you know, you know, Tony, that I loved the data use roundtable both times. So you're like, I'm going to ask her about this so that she can tell everyone how amazing this event is. And this meeting was, I have, uh, honestly, the first data use roundtable, which was last year, was amazing. And the data we looked at and the conversations we had about diversity, equity, and inclusion were so rich. And it was just very, very cool when I think about how we use data at Marion and how we have used it in the past, I think that we do a survey administration and then, and then sometimes we're talking about, we have meetings where, you know, maybe Tony comes and presents the data to us about that one survey. And we talk about what that survey means for us and what we can do to make improvements or what, what are we doing well? And let's celebrate what we're doing well. I think the data use roundtable is an opportunity to say, let's bring together different data we've collected through different survey administrations or in some cases with last year's data use roundtable what are pieces of data we could look at that can inform us in our conversation about diversity equity and inclusion and belonging and so like graduation rates retention rates the um, equitable course pass rate was like the most unbelievable piece of data I saw and if you haven't seen it you should ask Tony for it Uh, if he'll give it to you I don't know (laughs) anyway and then looking at all of that data and what does it mean together right what what is what picture is this painting of our student experience or our community experience because for the campus climate survey this year we we surveyed faculty and staff too and so it's just 
I, I thought it was so cool to be able to sit in a room with faculty and staff and administrators and have a conversation about our student experience as informed by this data that we've collected and what does that mean? Like, and how do we wrestle with that? I want to do a data use roundtable like every month or something, which Tony's like, please don't say this. Honestly, it was last year was very, very cool. And I think after the event, I was like so invigorated by it. And I kept talking about it. I said, next data use roundtable, you all better be there, which not enough people listened to me when I said that. But I still think that the people who came to the data use roundtable had a very fruitful discussion about what do our survey responses mean for us and, and how do we take that forward and make an impact there? I walked away with a lot of to-dos as the Title IX coordinator. We talked about campus climate survey related to sexual assault, but still it was a very, very fruitful conversation and I, I'm looking forward to all of the data use roundtables to come. I hope we do more of them and I hope that all of you listening you know, hear the excitement in my voice. It is not fake, I promise. I really loved it, and I, I hope that more people get involved. So let's see. I've been a director of assessment, evaluation, whatever, since 2012. So over 10 years at, at three different institutions, I've done events like this to try to promote use of, of the data because I think, you know, higher ed, you know, not just Marion or institutions I've worked at, but higher ed in general, we're, we're very good at collecting data and, and we, we fall short when it comes to using mm-hmm. the data. And our action plans are typically, let's collect more data. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so we really try to, to, to use it. But across three institutions, 10 years, I think Karen is, is the only person to show up to a, a meeting having done her own analysis, having brought her own information because... <laughs> At the first data use roundtable, she had done a lot looking at our our benchmarking institutions and how we compared. And I just remember standing up there, and this is in a room with, I think there were like 40 faculty and staff, and Karen was was sharing what she had discovered. And I'm like, oh my God, I was so caught (laughs) off guard. It's like, you know, it was the first time that it ever happened, but it was so great. And it just, oh man. I did that. uh, I did that in the meeting. I didn't come prepared with that. I did that yeah. while we were sitting there. Yeah. So I was like doing my own research while I was sitting, having a conversation about, you know, the data we already had. And yeah. it was just, it was really a good, it's a really good conversation that we had. And I, yeah, I look forward to more of them. It was just, it was awesome. Yeah. But I mean, it's just one example of just how, how data driven you are. And I know that, you know, like I mentioned before, we're going to be getting a lot more findings, a lot more reports when it comes to the sexual assault campus climate surveys. And I know that, that you and your team are, are definitely going to make good use of them mm-hmm. because you're so data-driven and so, so student-centered, you know, and, and students were the one that completed that survey. Mm-hmm. So you're definitely, you definitely value, value their feedback. Yeah, so. for sure. And I think, you know, we, you and I have had a conversation about what campus climate surveys we administer in the future. And I'm sure. really excited that HEADS has a campus climate survey related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I think it's so important to administer that survey, too. And we've been talking about, you know, how we do that, how we do that well. So I like the idea of doing alternating campus climate surveys, do a sexual assault campus climate survey one year, and then the next year do the DEI one. And so I, I'm really looking forward to co- collecting more data from our students and and especially 
as we're doing this grant work, how do we see changes in the campus climate survey based on, and is that related to what we're doing and the education we're doing with our students? So I think it's really good, really important. Well, thanks for, for making time to talk with me, Karen. So for you listening, if you have any questions about the assessment findings that we've talked about today, please feel free to email me. And for any first years and seniors, I don't know exactly when this episode is going to air, but I believe that we will likely still be administering the National Survey of Student Engagement. So for for any first years, any seniors listening, your voice matters. Please consider completing the National Survey of Student Engagement to help Marion become the best it could be. So the survey closes Sunday, May 14th. So you should have received a a bunch of emails from nessie at nessiesurvey.org. Please consider following those links and and completing the survey. And in appreciation for participating, all students who complete the survey will receive a $5 Starbucks gift card. Just bring a copy or photo of your survey confirmation page to the front desk of the library to receive your gift card. And uh, if you have any questions about Nessie or how data have been used at Marion, please don't hesitate to contact me. Karen, thank you for joining us on Data Talk. Yeah, thanks, Tony. This is really fun.